You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Thursday, and today you'll hear an episode from our Takeover series. Every month, we ask a different practitioner or thought leader to host a series of interviews that cover a specific theme that's relevant to our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. I'm the host of the Flip Maffler podcast. And as always, every Tuesday and sometimes even on Thursday, we actually have somebody come and do a takeover, which honestly gives me more time to do what I need to do in my life. But it also creates great content on the podcast. So this time, a good friend of mine, really, really a good friend of mine, Ted Wynn, he has a passion for the heroes in healthcare business. And we all know how the healthcare business has been impacted over the last years. And he, he started a podcast right in the middle of it. So Ted, tell us what this podcast series is all about that, and who do you interview in that? Sure. Well, thanks, Andrew, first. And second, thanks for having me here. Yeah, you know, our tagline is dedicated to highlighting bold, selfless professionals in the healthcare industry who are focusing on transforming lives in their communities. And we just thought with the COVID, COVID um, pandemic that we're all living through and still continuing to go through that these people and their stories just wasn't, wasn't being told or needed to be highlighted more. And so we just took it on as a, a bit of a passion project and said, let's start talking about these people and what they're doing. And uh, as a result, it's taken off. We have, uh, we are just finished episode 10. Ah, congrats. Thanks. And we have uh, last numbers I checked were about 1700 downloads already. That is awesome. So the podcast is called Heroes of Healthcare. Yep, and uh, yeah, and and uh, we are going to have links to your podcast here. So if people want to continue listening to it after even after the series is done, they can go check it out. We'll obviously write a blog and all those things. Share some of the people you're interviewing so we get a taste of it. Yeah. So yeah, and they can they can listen on the Heroes of Healthcare Podcast dot com website. So we have a whole website with the episodes posted there. Spotify, Apple, all the regular places as well. But yeah, we've been really fortunate. Um, we have uh, uh, Dr. Mark Knapp. He was a chief marketing, uh, excuse me, chief medical officer for Mount Sinai in New York City, who gave us a whole impact of how New York City responded to the pandemic and, and the stress on the people. We had the chief medical officer for Navant, massive healthcare system in the North Carolina and Southeastern market, talking all about vaccine safety of mRNA and the vaccine that's been coming out. And then we like to mix it up a little bit. We had an old-time friend of mine, Jack Curry, who is the voice of the New York Yankees, come on and talk all about baseball and how baseball was dealing with the COVID pandemic, but also how baseball was giving us some normalcy in our lives. Because one of the things we also want to focus on is not just the physicality of, of of the healthcare system, but also mental health. So we've also had the chief wellness officer from another major healthcare system talking about physician burnout, dealing with all the different clinicians and how are they dealing with the medical stress that they're under, under these uncertain times. So it's been very exciting and it's been, uh, we've had such a cross section of people. I think the listeners are going to find something in uh, great out of each one of them. Awesome, man. Ted, so, so everybody listening, you might be listening to the first episode you might be listening to the 10th takeover episode of this series. So just make sure you you look back and see if you have missed anything. But each one of them uh, is something that I feel Ted, you being so passionate about it is going to bring life to a lot of people as they hear it. So Ted, again, thanks for doing this. And everybody, enjoy the show. I'm excited to kick off the next episode with Dr. Mark Knapp. Good morning, Mark. How are you? I'm very well, Ted. And yourself? I'm great. Thanks. Excited to have you here. Real quick, let me tell the listeners a little bit about you. I understand you're Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs and Deputy Chief Medical Officer with Mount Sinai Health Systems in New York City. You were integral in Mount Sinai's ability to manage the influx of COVID-19 patients, and you assisted in the system's emergency management response where you recruited and deployed over 360 physicians, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants from outside the health system to manage the crisis. Amazing. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Knapp. It's nice to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. So, Mark, before we jump in, could you tell us where you hail from, what got you to Mount Sinai, and about your background? 
Sure. So it's a, it's a little bit of a, of a circle, actually, because I began my career as a physician at Mount Sinai. I, I did my training in general surgery there back in the 19, late 1980s. So as, you, as I just mentioned, I'm a general surgeon. I had practiced general surgery in Connecticut for a little under 10 years. And while I was there, I really became very interested in healthcare operations and in what makes healthcare run well, and more importantly, what makes healthcare run not so well, and started to dig into some of those issues and and decided to get some advanced training and got a master's in administrative medicine from the University of Wisconsin and transitioned to actually from full-time clinical practice to full-time administrative work in being hospitals, uh, the senior physician executive uh, in hospitals and, and ultimately in health systems. So I've worked at a small community hospital in northern Westchester, just north of New York City. I've worked in the heart of New York City at Lenox Hill Hospital, which many of your listeners may know of because it's now actually a series that was on one of the major streaming sites. And then at North Shore Long Island Jewish, which now is called Northwell. And now I'm at the Mount Sinai Health System in, in right in the heart of New York City. And my role in those places has been to be as a physician leader. And to, and as a physician leader, my responsibility is to try and create processes and create opportunities for physicians to do their best work so that patients receive the best care. That's probably a, a very, that's probably a 50,000 foot view of what it is. With regard to what you mentioned at the start of the podcast, I initiated the emergency response at Mount Sinai for COVID. And that's an unusual arrangement, but it's something that I've really valued over the last seven years while I've been at Mount Sinai and building its emergency management capabilities. It's incredibly rewarding to be able to ensure that your health system is able to respond to crises. And that's what COVID is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. You you just mentioned a little bit that that's unusual. Can you explain that a little bit more when you say that emergency management fell under your purview and how is that a little unique to maybe other health systems? Sure. I mean, typically, emergency management reports up through the operations line of an organization, ultimately up to the chief operating officer, for example. At least that's what I've observed in a number of other organizations. And Mount Sinai, which is a physician-led organization, it was, I, I think, relatively unique. When the health system formed seven years ago by the merger of Mount Sinai Medical Center with Continuum Health Partners, there really was no grand plan for how emergency management would be run. And so when I got there, I had just basically led part of the response for North Shore Long Island Jewish for Hurricane Sandy and Hurricane Irene and got a real taste for emergency management. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when I got to Mount Sinai and we were confronted by some early events that needed response and saw that we really didn't have a system approach to it that would account for seven separate hospitals set across the the greater New York City area, it seemed that somebody needed to take ownership of it. And so I, I did. We, there was a gas explosion on 116th Street in Park Avenue. People who are not from the New York City area won't know that area, but that's only about you know, 20 blocks away from the Mount Sinai Hospital. And so we got a number of patients from that. Now, Mount Sinai Hospital was very good at accepting those patients, but other patients might have ended up at Mount Sinai Morningside, which is on the west side of Manhattan. And there was no plan for coordinating the response between Mount Sinai Hospital and Mount Sinai Morningside. Wow. And that's sort of what led to say, hey, we've got to think about this more broadly. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then it took it from there. So that's great. I mean, interesting. So how in retrospect, and I, and I want to talk more about, you know, this year with you from your and the facilities perspective. But how do you think that work that you just talked about organizing and seeing that gap that existed, how did that help you? Do you think, or did you see ways that helped you when the pandemic broke and things in New York all just started going, you know, going crazy? Well, I think it helped tremendously because over the past seven years, Mount Sinai has built and grown its capability around emergency preparedness. If you think back to 9-11, prior to 9-11, hospitals were expected to be able to manage a disaster within their facility. So if there were a power outage, you had plans for managing that. If there were a fire, you had plans for managing that. Mm -hmm. But there really was no expectation, at least to my understanding and my looking back at the history, there was really no plan for a major external event 
that hospitals would have to respond to. And I remember I lived through 9-11. I remember waiting in, in the hospital I worked in at the time, waiting for patients to come. And as every healthcare provider in the New York area will tell you, everybody was waiting for patients to come and they never came. Mm-hmm. Had they come, had we had 3,000 patients show up in our emergency departments within the New York metropolitan area, we would have been swamped. We wouldn't have been able to manage them. We didn't have plans in place for that. And so CMS, the Joint Commission, and you know our public officials said, hey, we've got to fix this. Yeah. We've got to have plans. We've got to build resiliency. And emergency management as a hospital function grew up. It suddenly became important. Subsequent to 9-11, we had Joplin, Missouri, where tornado hit a hospital. Yeah, I remember and that. Took it out. Right. We had Hurricane Katrina, where Memorial Hospital ended up actually being unable to take care of the patients that it had. I mean, these were devastating yeah. scenarios that health systems were just still grappling with. And I didn't want to see that happen to the health system that I was responsible for. Now, as far as being involved as a physician, I think that's what's unusual, but I think it added a flavor to to the approach so that we could bring in the expertise. Emergency management is now a real profession. I mean, it is a profession that we should all know more about and really embrace, but it's a convener. It's a convener of resources. It's a convener of expertise, Mm -hmm. and it's a structured way of thinking that needs to then pull in the resources it needs to actually solve the acute problem. Having a medical infrastructure that's fully aware of what those plans are and how that works, I think that's what made our response unique. Yeah, well, it's really that preparedness, right? It's just, it, it, let's think about the things that we don't think about, right? What could happen and how do we be ready for that? You know, that, that is exactly it. And it goes to a principle that we're learning about more and more in healthcare called high reliability and being preoccupied with failure, being preoccupied with the, with the reality that something's going to go wrong. Yeah. And are you ready to, to manage it? Yeah, for sure. You know, and I think we see that in lots of ways. We see that with the CDC. We see that with all sorts of different things that are popping up now, which is, and it's always easy when you're in the middle of the crisis to say, why didn't we and who didn't we and to point the fingers. And that's not the time to be doing that. But certainly being prepared and doing those things for sure are important. It's funny you talked about the 9-11 experience. I remember my dad, who I just actually had on our first episode, he was getting ready to go in for bypass surgery on 9-11 that morning. And he was in a New York hospital out at, at the time, it was Winthrop Hospital or University. And now I think it's part of the NYU system. And he was getting ready to be wheeled in and 9-11 occurred. And they wheeled them back out and they said, we have to be ready because we're in the epicenter or re- regional area. We have to be ready for this influx of this ca- catastrophe that happened. And P.S.'s story, same like you, unfortunately, nobody came. Right. So take me back to January, February of this year, and then to March and April and tell me what were you working on in January and February and what were you looking at? When did you guys first get wind that this might be coming? And I've heard reports that there were signs earlier than what sometimes is reported. And then what did March and April look like for Mount Sinai? So, you know, January and February, we were aware of the coronavirus outbreak in China, that this was a novel virus. And the first time I remember ever hearing the term novel virus was when I was the chief medical officer at Lenox Hill Hospital and and H1N1 appeared. Mm -hmm. And my director of infection prevention, Dr. Michael Tapper, came to me and he said, this is this is a big deal. You know, this could be really be a very big deal. And I had no idea really what he meant. I just didn't have a perspective on it. Now, Mike was an extremely seasoned, knowledgeable infection prevention specialist, epidemiologist. And as and as you recall, H1N1 really didn't cause a big deal. I mean, there were people who got sick, but it wasn't a lethal infection. And it came and it went and it caused a hiccup that summer where, you know, kids got sick and but that was it. Yeah. And then there was SARS and there was MERS. And those were novel viruses as well. But for whatever reason, they didn't, you know, they didn't track all over the world. There were outbreaks, there were pockets. But as novel viruses go, they weren't causing tremendous problems for us, at least not in our region. And even Ebola back in like 2015, I think, or 2014, there was a, a worldwide panic about it. Right. But it never materialized into anything really significant outside of Africa. I mean, there was there was a patient in New York City and we had a patient. We thought we were had a patient when 
when a patient showed up in our emergency room with the right story. So I, I think to some degree, hearing about this novel virus in China, having lived through those four episodes, it was almost like the boy had cried wolf four times in the past. And it just didn't generate a lot of panic, a lot of, you know, this is going to be really significant. Although I would say our epidemiologists were saying this is important. We got to pay attention. It just didn't seem like it was going to be as, I don't think that's maybe, maybe that was my own personal response. Sure. Well, I think like you said, it's, it is, you know, when you, it's in human nature for us to, as you said, the boy who cried wolf, we've heard it before, we've heard it before and it never mounted, which brings me a question and, you know, not to get too technical because I won't understand it, but (laughs) not to get too technical, but do you have any sense, what is it about Corona? that made it different than the others? Is it just the ability for it to transfer into its ability to stay alive and stay active and hyper, you know, what made those others die off and this one just sweep the world? You know, I probably am not the right person to comment on that. <laughs> I defer the answer to, to an epidemiologist, but I think it's, a, it's probably a number of factors. Yeah. One is every organism that causes an infection has a, an infectivity rate. Mm-hmm. called the r naught. You know, if somebody has it, how likely are other people to then get it? And I think the r naught for this virus is, is relatively high compared to other types of infections, I believe. And again, this is not my area of expertise. Sure. And then I think that in the beginning, at least as I'm understanding it, in China, they did not clamp down on it. And That's so there, was, there were really no attempts at containment early on. Okay. There was denial. And so when you, if you take a major urban center, from what I understand, the province where this occurred, the center is, is massive, hugely populated, very densely populated. If you take that sort of situation and you do not try to put in place any containment and or mitigation strategies, and you don't limit travel, you are going to very rapidly disseminate the virus very long distance. So I think it's a combination of the infectivity of this virus, the social circumstances of when it was first came up and whether or not the public response was appropriate, the the infection prevention response was appropriate. Again, when you think of Ebola, Ebola scares everybody as soon as people talk about it. And there are tremendous resources that are brought to bear to contain it. Area where it's endemic is not nearly as populated and doesn't have as much travel in and out as that part of China. So it's a very different set of circumstances. Interesting. At least that's that's my understanding. Okay. Well, fair enough. Well, thanks. And, and you may need to do another podcast to yeah. correct everything I just said. You're, you're giving me content. I love it. <laughs> so let's jump back. So January, February, we talked about you're getting some wind from your colleagues saying, you know, heads up, this is, we got to, we got to take this seriously. So please keep, continue to walk us through that. So we started, when I say we, Don Boyce, who's our VP for emergency management, who, if you have an opportunity, you should probably interview him as well. Don is extremely seasoned. We recruited him out of the government. He literally was taking care of survivors of Hurricane Maria when I, when I reached out to him. So he and I started talking about, you know, what do we need to do to start preparing? And initially, we started up relatively slowly. It was in late January. We started having weekly phone calls amongst some of the key areas that we thought would be involved if something were to happen. So engineering, infection prevention, supply chain, you know, some of the, the, the infrastructure elements of the health system. Mm-hmm. And we increased that, the frequency of those meetings, and we grew the meeting larger and larger, those meetings larger and larger through mid-February. And then by late February, we actually pulled together an in-person meeting. Remember those? Those where you actually all go into one room and you sit right, right. and you look at each other? <laughs> yeah. We actually had a meeting where which we focused entirely really on communications because we were getting the sense that communication was going to be one of the biggest challenges as it is in any emergency, but it was going to be a huge challenge because of the combination of panic, a lot of disinformation, and a lot of things that we still didn't know. So we started to plan our approach to communicating. When I left the New York City area to go visit my daughter in Atlanta, not far from where you are sitting right now. Right. And this was uh, the last weekend of February. On that Friday, I get a phone call from one of the staff saying, we think we have our first patient with COVID. It was a, a woman who had just returned from Iran and her husband who had also returned from Iran. And she presented to the emergency department at the Mount Sinai Hospital with symptoms that sounded like COVID, bad cough, high fever, recent travel, you know, this, the triad. Right. Pause for a minute. Just at this point, though, did the hospital have any way to test for it? So, no, the, the testing was only being done by state departments of health. Got it. 
So in New York's Department of Health, the epidemiology section is actually really pretty strong. And we have a great relationship with them. And again, we've been through this with them for measles recently, because the measles was back in 2019. We had been through this with Ebola. Every time there's a TB case, we bring them in. So there's a very collaborative relationship with the Department of Health epidemiology group. But when we have a patient who's got a strong history, you immediately pick up the phone, you call the Department of Health. They then listen to the story. They determine, is this somebody who's high likelihood of, of having, you know, whatever disease it is that you're concerned about? Mm-hmm. And if so, you do the specimen, you draw the specimens and you get it to the Department of Health. And at that point, I believe the Department of Health was then sending them to the CDC. Okay. I think they were developing their own testing. So they tested, but it also went to the CDC for confirmation. Anyway, the turnaround time was, was two days. So that was on a Friday. On Sunday, I'm in the Atlanta airport flying home and I get a, a call that there's an emergency meeting because we had just gotten word the test was positive. Wow. Yeah. And this was the first case in New York City. And you said that, then you said this is end of February. This Well, this was March 1st, actually. March 1st, okay. And as soon as that happened, all of a sudden, all the questions right. that you wish you had worked on beforehand hmm. start coming forward. Like, okay, where does this woman live? Okay, she lives in one of our apartment buildings. All right, meaning where our residents live. Okay, how do we deal with that? Do we have to alert all the other residents that live in that building? Mm-hmm. Do we have to do special things about cleaning the building? Does she have to stay quarantined? And if so, what does that mean? Can what about her husband who tested negative? You know, what should, how do they function? Right. How do we provide her with care? And so all these questions started coming very quickly. Policy decisions had to be made. And so that's when we really ramped up our emergency response. And we, we started virtually because, again, initially we had no idea how widespread this was going to be. The right. notion of community spread hadn't happened yet. We thought that she got it because she had just gotten back from Iran and Iran already had an outbreak. So it wasn't community spread, meaning somebody within the community in New York giving it to somebody else within the community in New York City. This was somebody who traveled. Right. And without knowing how infectious it is, we had no idea. Okay, so she's traveled. She's come through the airport. She's taken an Uber to get to her apartment. She's walked across the street. She's been to the emergency department. Certain people were exposed there. You know, how many people has she been in contact with? Sure. And so the Department of Health now comes in and starts doing all the contact tracing for that. But this was, again, this was early. Yeah. And interesting you said that because I was I was going to ask that, but you just said that. So they started that, that whole contact tracing process happened right, right immediately. Correct. Now, shortly after that case, a case that got much more attention, and that was a man who took the train to work every day from New Rochelle, which is a suburb north of New York City. And I believe he, I think he's in banking, who ended up getting really sick. Now, this woman that we, that I mentioned, she wasn't really sick. She got better in her apartment. Mm-hmm. But this other, this other gentleman got sick and ended up being admitted to another hospital in New York City. He took a cab to get to the hospital. The cab driver got sick. Mm. Several other people in New Rochelle got sick because he had been part of this community. Right. And so we had a hotspot in New Rochelle that got a lot of attention. That was yeah. the first major outbreak in the New York City area. I, you know, I remember that. And, you know, again, being from New York, I know the area. And I remember scratching my head saying, why New Rochelle? Right. You know, out of, you know, if you said to me, and obviously it eventually got to New York City with everybody on the subways and all the different things, that would make sense. But I remember saying New Rochelle, what happened in New Rochelle that made that happen? Right. And I, I don't recall if it was ever determined where he had gotten it, but he he had, I, I don't believe he had had any recent travel. Mm-hmm. And so that was evidence of likely, I believe, uh, and I may be spreading wild rumors here, but I listen, <laughs> <laughs> there's plenty of people out there right now who, who are struggling with these issues. But I believe that was considered community spread. And right. that was huge concern from an epidemiological perspective. Yeah. That now it's just in the community and people are not necessarily going to know that they have it and will you seeing other people. And if you think back to those days, you know, information coming from the CDC wasn't all that clear. And I'm not pinning anything on the CDC. Whenever you have some new organism and and you don't know what its behavior is like, I don't believe that masking was being strongly recommended at the time. Right. Hand hygiene is always recommended, but I don't think masking was. And so people weren't masking because I don't think people thought it was particularly infectious or that it would be something that, that you would catch 
just by being in, in proximity with somebody else. I, yeah, I recall we mi- middle of March, I was on a family vacation and things were really starting to you know, shut down. They were talking about borders closing and things like that. And we did, we did travel back. But I remembered, you know, unlike three months ago when I traveled, there was no mask. You know, we, we got on the plane, we packed in with everybody and we were heading home, but there, was no, there wasn't any. So I wouldn't be surprised if there was no, you know, none of that cautionary uh, messaging was coming out. So I, I remember specifically attending a press conference that Governor Cuomo had done that was before the first case showed up. Mm-hmm. And it was all about preparation. And we had, Mount Sinai had just sent or was in the midst of sending a few mental health workers down to Puerto Rico because to, to help provide some relief, resilience relief. And so he'd done a, a press conference thanking everybody for doing it. And immediately after that press conference, he did an update on what was going on with the coronavirus preparations. So this was all around the same time. But I, I went to the airport with those people being deployed to Puerto Rico. And I remember walking the long distance to the JetBlue terminal at, at JFK and passing about three people wearing masks. Nobody else was wearing a mask. You know, that was just something that wasn't being considered, you know, right. was, wasn't happening. So we've learned that we have to do things differently. Yeah. Well, we learned that, Matt, you know, in, even in the early days, there was all the social things going back and forth about you know, masks don't help. Masks do help. Don't make me wear a mask. Make me, you know, all those sorts of things. And, you know, now we're we're certainly understanding that it is it is not the silver bullet by any mechanism, but it certainly is a preventative action right up there with washing hands and sanitizing and doing all those sorts of things. So yeah, yep. no, but we've, we've come a long way. So now we're about mid-March, it sounds like. And when do you really realize that this thing is, this is the tornado coming? So, you know, at this point, the World Health Organization did not declare it a pandemic. I don't remember what the definition of a pandemic is from, from WHO, but it wasn't a pandemic yet. But we were now really activating. We were meeting on a regular basis. We admitted our first patient with COVID on the 7th to Mount Sinai West, which is on the west side of Manhattan, hence its name. And even then, the numbers of patients in the hospital were not that high. But so the first patient diagnosed on the first, the first admission to one of our hospitals was on the seventh. By the 23rd, so only 22 days after that first patient in New York City, half of our beds were filled with COVID patients and all our ICUs were full. Oh, wow. So now when I say all our ICUs are full, we run an average census of about 190, 200 ICU patients across the health system. So all those beds were full. Now, by then, the governor has already made an announcement that he wants the hospitals to identify 50% additional beds, meaning you've got to create space for all those patients. You also have to have physical beds to put them in. Right. So you have to order beds. We had to get beds in from outside the organization. And then you have to staff those beds. You have to figure out how you're going to do that. And that's where we pivoted our planning a bit. And I took over leading the response with regard to making sure we had enough healthcare practitioners, physicians, PAs, NPs in various specialties to make sure we could take care of all those patients. Our predictive modeling a week later said that we were going to have 10,000 COVID patients. Wow. By the end of April. And at that point, what did you think your, even your pivoted, <laughs> if that's such a word, you know, retrofitting your facility to manage that? How did that compare to the numbers you felt you could take? So we figured out very quickly, I, I have to give tremendous credit to the leadership in each of the hospitals where they identified how they could ramp up significant volume in order to make space for additional patients. Don Boyce, who I mentioned earlier, reached out to an organization who came in and they're a fully self-sufficient organization. They sent up a 10 hospital across the street from Mount Sinai in Central Park. That gave us another 78 beds. Mount Sinai Hospital itself started building patient rooms in the atrium that we have. We have a very large atrium that was you know, part of the hospital. And we're talking about like 30 beds that we were able to put in there, 30 isolation rooms, to be able to accommodate those patients. But it's not just the space. It's also, again, the staff. We were able to create the 50% increase that the governor had asked us to do. That we were able to identify those spaces. We were able to get the equipment, build the beds, nursing. Our our human resources department worked on getting additional nurses from outside the organization, as well as training up 
our existing nurses and redeploying them. And I worked with my team on ensuring that we had sufficient physicians. And the first thing we did was reassign our physician workforce. One of the things that the governor had done on the 22nd, he implemented something called New York Pause, and all elective surgeries were ceased. Yeah. So immediately you have all your anesthesiologists, all your nurse anesthetists, and all your surgeons are now essentially available so to speak, mm-hmm. to do other things. Anesthesiologists, they can, with relative ease, transition into doing in critical care medicine. You know, being an anesthesiologist, you have a lot of the skills that, that intensivists have. Okay. Our medical surgical nurses, the regular nurses that are on the, you know, our floors, the ones who are used to taking higher acuity patients, they were trained up to do critical care. And that was a huge, that was a huge growth requirement for them. Suddenly, you're taking care of patients who are on multiple different intravenous medications simultaneously with side effects that they're not familiar dealing with, Mm -hmm. uh, monitoring them on a much more aggressive basis. Patients who are on on respirators, on breathing machines, it it was a huge, huge challenge to do that. And I attribute that to all the steps the governor took in terms of implementing the New York pause, the social distancing that people adhered to, the masking, the hand hygiene cutting visitors. You know, we weren't letting visitors into the hospital. Tremendous. You know, there was a lot of behavioral stuff that we, that we implemented that caused those numbers to come down. So by then, people got a sigh of relief. But then we started talking about, well, there's probably going to be a second wave. You know, if you look at history, previous pandemics, there is a second wave. Sure. And then we started really focusing on resilience and mental health. I mean, we had had been doing it, but we put all of our attention in the mental health arena. Let's just take a moment and let's talk about those folks who, in your eyes, staying with the theme of our show, who are the heroes? I mean, when I hear you talk, I say they're all heroes. You know, when I hear you talk about them, anesthesiologists and, and all these people changing their roles and willingness to do it. And, you know, the thing that I also always really want to always be reminded about is superheroes that we think of in the comic books have superpowers, right? These are humans doing superhuman things, doing hero type things. And I think that that's always an important thing for us to understand in some of the other conversations I've had. That's what people are saying. These are regular people just doing heroic things. But I know that there are certain folks that you mentioned, you know, Don and Heather and some of the others who just really kind of stepped up and rallied. And, and not only did they rally from an effort and an energy, but really got creative and got innovative in, in, in the time of that it was needed. And I'd love to see, I'd love to take a moment and just shout out some of those people and that you recognized who really just came to the call. So I personally do not feel like I was a hero. I mean, and you and I talked about this in preparing for today and that, I mean, I was not on the front line, meaning I was not sitting there operating on a patient or starting an intravenous line or doing chest compressions on somebody who's arresting or assisting in intubation. To me, the people who did that those are the people who are the heroes. Yes, it does take leadership to get a health system organized to be able to do what we did. So Don Boyce from Emergency Management, Heather Isola, who leads our PA services, and, and we have close to 900 physician assistants across the health system. Bill Bodecker, who did the same thing for the nurse practitioners, Sabina Lim, Jonathan Ripp, and other people. Dan Hughes, who led a lot of the work we did regarding resilience and mental health. Brendan Carr and his emergency departments. These people, the leaders are essential because you can't really get everybody to, to work in a certain way. But our head of critical care, a young physician named Adam out in Mount Sinai, Brooklyn, who, I mean, I, he's really just recently out of training and he's a bright, energetic, very hardworking, dedicated physician. And I remember roughly about, oh, I guess it was before the 23rd of March. It was probably about the 17th or so getting a phone call from him one evening, and he was literally crying on the phone, just overwhelmed with the numbers of patients that we had. I went out and visited him at Brooklyn and made rounds there. And he was obviously much better by then. This was, this was later. This was, uh, I think, in, probably in May when the numbers had come back down. I mean, he had grown tremendously through that. But I just remember being on the phone and trying to figure out how I could help him and how I could get him resources because there were just too many patients to take care of. Yeah. One of the nurses that I spoke with when I was visiting who was a regular medical surgical nurse, meaning that she took care of, you know, your typical patients on a medical floor, not an intensive care unit nurse, had been pushed into serving as an intensive care unit nurse. It was one of, one of the instances I mentioned earlier. And she was single, 
young, probably early 30s, maybe late 20s. And she was going to be off for the next three days. And I said to her, what are you going to do with your weekend? And she lived alone in an apartment in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And she said, what can I do? You know, I mean, I can't visit my family or my friends. Right. You know, what do you know? So what do you do when you're off? It was it was almost worse for her to be off than it was for her to be at work. Sure. Because the risk of exposure and then exposing others. Right. But you're also sitting you're sitting in your apartment and emotionally isolated and thinking about what you've just gone through and thinking about going back to it. It was just such, you know, I mean, what besides picking up some solitary hobby that would just but, you know, you can't get out of your own head. Sure. And, and we're social and we're social creatures by nature. So, you know, seeing them, those those are the heroes to me. Yeah. And and I understand, you know, I've had this conversation with Don a number of times. He really doesn't like being called a hero. I mean, it's his very strong feelings about not calling other healthcare workers heroes that they actually really reject the concept. Sure. It's what they chose to do, it's their job. And it's almost as if no matter how hard you do it, it's never enough. Yeah, no, and I, and I can appreciate that. And it was actually one of the things when we decided to name the podcast, it was one of the things we struggled with because we recognize that true heroes don't see themselves as being heroes. And I appreciate it. And, you know, and I, and I love the fact that you shouted out, you know, those folks that in the leadership mode and things like that. But it goes without say, everybody who was on the front lines at Mount Sinai during this crisis were heroes. They all were, you know, they they were the leaders, but as you said, those people who were receiving and those people who were taking temperatures out in the tents and out in central park. And I mean, all of them were, all of them were heroes. So thank you. If they don't want to tell their stories, I appreciate that you're telling their story because it, it needs to be told and it needs to be heard. So with some of the time that we have left, a couple of the questions. So we go through the, you just talked about everything declining and we're kind of getting down to something that we feel like it's more manageable. And here we are in November and it's coming around the horn again. What are you seeing with the new spike, the second wave that you mentioned earlier that it's starting to come? How are you guys managing that maybe better? What are you seeing? What are the observations as we're, as they say, "Uh oh, here it's coming around again, so to speak? Uh, Well, before I just just sort of jump right into the whole notion of second wave planning, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention all of the civil unrest that we've you know, witnessed in the wake of the George Floyd murder. Because, and the reason I raise that is we were laser focused on resilience and mental health for our staff, for our staff in recovering from the first wave when George Floyd died. And New York City is about as diverse an area as you could possibly imagine. I mean, from what I understand, Queens, the borough of Queens in New York City is the most diverse geographic area in the the country, if not the world. And diversity is something that's very important. At Mount, at Mount Sinai, something that we really value, but it's also something that we could always do better at. And we started to think, look at ourselves and say, well, you know, did we do enough as healthcare providers? Because in our own backyard, we did have different outcomes from this virus. We had black and brown patients who didn't do as well as the white patients did. And I think that's been everybody's experience, frankly. And so now it sort of married this sort of, you know, value of diversity and inclusion to clinical care and our responsibility as healthcare providers. Hmm. And we couldn't ignore this because, you know, what had happened to George Floyd and what has happened over and over again across our country and, and in our history, it's been there. But now in our faces was this reality that we actually, we contributed to, we, whatever we did, it was somehow connected in terms of our ability to provide care for our communities. And so we now were really distracted because we were planning on really focusing on our resilience and our mental health when we knew for our people's sake and our patients' sake that we had to acknowledge in a really meaningful way that we had to fix the embedded racist behaviors that exist in our society. And I I don't want to hijack the podcast and take it away, but the reason I'm mentioning it is we realized we could, you can't just say, we don't have time to discuss that right now. Right. We're dealing with a pandemic. Right. You really can't because you know what? There's plenty of stuff out there that's calling racism a pandemic. And, and look, this is my political view. I agree with them. And I will tell you that dial back five months, I wouldn't have probably said that. 
And the reason I, I bring this up is my youngest daughter, who graduated from, from Bucknell a year and a half ago, has been living with us since March because she works for Deloitte and Deloitte's working remotely. And so she's not living in an apartment in Arlington, Virginia anymore. She's living in her bedroom in our house. And when this came up, when George Floyd was, was killed, one day she said to me at dinner, and I get to have dinner with her every night, which is rare. That did never happen in my lifetime. That's right, a benefit right. of COVID. Yeah. She said to me, so dad, what are you saying to your, to your staff about George Floyd? What are you doing about that? And I said to her, what am I saying about it? We're not talking about it. I mean, that's not, that's not appropriate to talk about at work. I mean, you know, it's, that's a, that's a private issues. People have feelings about it. She looked at me and said, dad, you've got to talk about this. This is like really important to people. They want to know you're a leader. What's your feeling about it? You know, where do you come down on this issue? Because they all have feelings about it. And so to not address it, it's just sort of the elephant in the room. And I said, come on, Sydney, you're, you're not right. You know, that's just not appropriate. I appreciate your youthful exuberance. This is not right. But I was really troubled by it. So I started talking about it with a couple of other very senior people at Mount Sinai. And we pulled in the person who leads, who's very high up in our office of diversity and inclusion. And we asked her to talk to us about this. And it was literally like opening a floodgate. She, she went on a rant about how, you know, this, she's in this office on, office on the Office of Diversity and Inclusion, and she comes to our leadership meetings and she's there, she's educating us. But, you know, where is it really tangible? Is it really reaching? And we, we understood that, first of all, my daughter was right. We needed to talk about it. And frankly, we needed to take our leadership and educate them. So we started a book club. And we had done this the summer before for another purpose. We used uh, our leadership meetings as a book club and we read White Fragility, which that is what really opened my eyes. I mean, it's so well laid out. It's written by a white person and it really does lay out what it means to be racist and, and what it means to be white in the, U- in the U.S. and what it means to be not white. And the reason I'm saying that is because now we had to focus on that and on Wave 2. Wow. But I think it has, at least my feeling is, I feel like a much more genuine leader, knowing that I have now had conversations with people in my organization that I never would have had before about what it's been like for them to work in an environment that, you know, to work in our society when they are a minority. So first off, thank you for, for pausing us and going there, because I appreciate that. And I think that that would be is such a big part of the story of what you all were going through. And I think you're right. We get so focused on the pandemic. I know I do that sometimes we forget about the other part, things that are going on in the world that are equally as important and equally impactful. You know, and I think it was, I can't remember who told me, but somebody I spoke to recently said that the George Floyd event was a bit of a breaking point for a lot of the healthcare workers especially in New York, in the middle. Like that was the point where they were like, I just can't do this anymore. Like the George Floyd event on top of, as you said, they were doing all this hard work to try to save lives was a bit crippling for a lot of them. That was the part that they felt that that was a burden now they just couldn't take on in addition to everything that they were doing. So I had forgotten about that. And so I'm so glad you paused us and said, let's, let's not forget that that was going on in the, in, the, in the middle. And I love your vulnerability and I love your just to be open about it and to talk about that. That was, uh, I appreciate that very much. Well, I have learned, I mean, this has been, look, 2020 has been a lot of things. I've probably learned more in this year than I learned in the last five years before it combined about myself, about what an organization can do and about what our society needs to address. I know that this has been incredibly painful. I guess it's one of those things, you know, that, that, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I think that my daughter got married in the middle of all this in a micro wedding, not the wedding she had intended. Right. There's a lot that's different. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. This has been awesome. I think that the, as we start, as again, as we, as we start to wrap up here, the last two questions that I kind of had for you, one was, we started to talk about the second wave and what, what do you see and kind of what are your thoughts are. And then the other thought is with the second wave coming, how is Mount Sinai's preparedness, which is now even different, getting, you know, making you feel more confident, less confident, you know, in terms of this coming around again, as I had mentioned. So I would say the way that we're approaching the second wave or whatever wave you call this, because, you know, there's ripples all along. When we look at our numbers, this is clearly you know, we haven't hit the second wave yet. We're starting to see things inch up. 
Yeah. One thing is we have much better data than we had back in March. In March, there was no tracking of infection rates. Testing wasn't even available. You know, now we can keep very close eye on how much activity is there in the community. So we'll have a, more of a warning if things start to ramp up. So that's one. The second, though, is we're really trying to thread the needle. We took a very blunt instrument in order to save lives last time, meaning New York pause, stopping all elective surgery, diverting all of your resources toward managing the pandemic, bringing in 360 or so people from outside the organization at extremely high cost because you know they, they, don't, they didn't volunteer to come, they, they got paid. While I think some may have volunteered, we did pay them all. You know, we can't afford that again. The financial hit we took was on the orders of hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, we haven't even touched on that. Yeah. We, we can't afford to do that again. That will, you know, I mean, look, I, I was just driving around this morning and I saw a bunch of storefronts that are all now have, you know, for rent signs in them, businesses that have been there for years. I, I know that people have been crushed by this from an economic perspective. And people probably think healthcare is doing okay because we're taking all the care of all these patients. The reality is no. Right. The reality is we took a financial hit that we may not recover from. Mm-hmm. And all across the country, health systems are laying people off or finding other ways to shed expense. So we don't want to do that again. Whereas I said, we're trying to thread the needle and not have to do that. Meaning that we don't want to have to stop elective surgeries, which we did last time because we needed the resources, meaning the people. And we also needed the space. We needed the PACUs, the recovery rooms as ICU spaces. Sure. We needed the doctors and nurses that were doing surgery to do other things. We're going to try not to do that. And we don't want to bring in people from outside the organization. Mm -hmm. We don't want to have to spend that extra money for that. So we are trying very hard to thread that needle and it may not be achievable. Right. But that's how that, so our plans are all predicated on that. And hopefully with really responsible civic duty on the part of the community, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they shut down the New York city schools today. Right. Because the numbers started to inch up. Yeah. I saw, I saw they were going to watch and consider that. Yeah. Well, they did it. So, and I sense your approval of that. <laughs> That's the right. Well, you know, I'm struggling with the whole idea about closing school. I mean, it's the likelihood of children getting very sick is low. Mm-hmm. Teachers, on the other hand, are at risk. Sure. Obviously, they're older, and there's a real cost to not sending your children to school. For sure, it's a huge cost. I mean, their own development, as well as the fact that well, now somebody's got to stay home with them. Right. And parents now are, are, you know, it's there's a huge societal cost to this that we will we will not be able to calculate for probably a generation. Sure. Yeah. No. And not every parent can work from home. Right. Yeah. No, it, it, it does. It does reach. It does reach far. And so I keep saying one more thing. One last thing. So we're hearing stuff coming out of Pfizer. We're hearing stuff coming out of some other areas. I know you're not an infectious disease you know, background, but what's your thoughts? I mean, in my, my view is even if the vaccines are good and they're ready to deploy them at the speed they're saying, we're still 12 months before we're starting to feel that you know, maybe we're feeling safe again. If not more, what's your view on that? I think that what this country needs, and this is again just one man's opinion, is somebody taking charge and making a statement about how people should approach this. We really need to be much more responsible and less divisive about how people should be protecting themselves and actually protecting each other. Yeah. There are going to be people who refuse to take the vaccine. There are people who refuse to take vaccines now. I mean, that's not unusual. Sure. And I think with a new vaccine, I think the numbers of people who are afraid to take it until there's more history with it is going to be significant. Sure. Um, well, nobody, think, want, nobody wants to take the vaccine to find out 12 months later. You probably shouldn't have done that. Correct. And I think the projections are like right now, supposedly 50 percent of people will take the vaccine. 50 mm-hmm. percent will not get us to herd immunity, which means that we are still going to have infections, you know, hotspots. And then it comes down again. If you're of, of a certain mindset that this is not a big deal and that stuff happens and if you get it, you get it and you're not going to take away my civil liberties and I'm not going to get a vaccine and I'm not going to wear a mask, then the consequence, I think, is really, and this is, again, I'm a healthcare worker. The consequence is that our healthcare infrastructure can't handle that. We're not built to manage taking care of, you know, additional thousands of patients. Mm-hmm. So I do believe we have to have a national conversation about civic responsibility and balancing that against 
civil libertarianism, you know, yeah. personal freedoms versus your responsibility to your, your neighbor. And that's, again, this is highly personal. Sure. I do think, though, that and I just heard Anthony Fauci speak that he's very confident. And I got you know, if anybody if anybody has a, a voice that's trusted in the U.S. right now, I, I would say it's him that corners were not cut in developing the virus. And so therefore, if uh, sufficient numbers of tested individuals are there and that the virus has been checked, shown to be safe, that it is safe and that it is effective. So I think that, you know, we, it's going to take time for people to, to come to grips with that and decide to get start getting vaccinated. But until we have significant amount of immunity, we're not going to be able to take our masks off. We're not going to be able to have life as we used to know it. Yeah, no, I agree. So again, thank you so much for your time. This has been amazing. Really appreciate every time you, you kind of walk into these things, you, you don't know where it's going to go. And this has been really special to have you on and to have you share your heart with us and give us some ideas of what's been going on. I think for our listeners, I think you'll be excited because I think we're going to try to get some of the heroes that Dr. Knapp has shared with us onto some of our other episodes. So you can continue to hear the story from New York and the Mount Sinai view of things. And I just, again, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for your service, your candor, your heart. And thanks for being part of the Heroes of Healthcare. But before I leave, I've got to ask you the, my famous end question. If you had to pick who your hero is, do you have a hero? I'd have to say that, well, I really don't have a single hero. I mean, my family and what they do and, you know, they're heroes to me. But I think I know what you mean. And, and I think overall... If I were to identify a specific hero, that would be negating the things that others have done that have been important to me. So I guess in the moment while we're, you know, thinking back past about COVID and what we went through and getting ready for our next wave of COVID, clearly I think the people who have been putting themselves out on the front line, the doctors, the nurses, the housekeepers, dietary workers, pharmacy workers, all of those are heroes to me. They are the ones that are running into the proverbial fire to to help. And they've got all they have is something they could lose, but they're still they're still doing it. So, again, thank you, Dr. Knapp, for your time. Thank you for your insights. It's been amazing. And we just continue to wish you good health and continue to do the great work. Thanks for being a part of Heroes of Healthcare. And thanks for the invitation to participate. It was it was great to do this. I've, I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.